If you enjoy listening to the Uncover Up podcast, but find your eyes are jealous of your ears, check out the Uncover Up website at uncoverupconspiracy.com. You'll find our short videos, brilliantly animated by Sean Egerton Foreman, on topics such as the Gorman UFO dogfight and how to recognize if you're in a doomsday cult. You can also jump to Instagram for our latest updates and contests, check out our bios, or even better, send us an email. And now, on to the show. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me is Nathan Radke. Hello. And today we have a special guest, Shelley Lesher. Yes, thank you. So I am a nuclear physicist. I got my PhD from the University of Kentucky uh, not that long ago, and I guess a little long ago, because I've done postdocs in Belgium, where most of my experiments were at CERN. So I've had some experience there. And then I was at Lawrence Livermore National Lab for a couple of years before taking up a position at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, where I am now a professor and most recently chair of the department. So that's kind of the trajectory of my career. Now, Shelley, yeah. you've been to some places that to Lee and I, and I think to a lot of our listeners, are almost mythic in nature. Like you just you just dropped <laughs> the fact that you were at CERN, which of course uh, was the site of so many amazing conspiracy theories. You talked about- And Livermore, uh, Livermore which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, yeah. And I think probably the one that's going to grab the most attention right now, you have been to the Nevada test site. Yes. Yes. That is uh, Area 51, right? We have to use- It's the- adjacent. The conspiratorial name for this this location. Yeah, that is true. So the Nevada test site includes up to Area 50, and then right on the other side of the fence is Area 51. So it's it's close. So you've been to Area 50. I don't know that I was in Area 50. I was close. Maybe Area 49. You have certainly been Perhaps. way closer than any of us have ever been. The reason that uh, that we have uh, Shelly on is because uh, we came across her podcast, and we are now big fans of it. And uh, Shelly, did you want to talk a little bit about my nuclear life? Sure. So as a nuclear physicist, I am interested in, well, kind of everything nuclear. And the way that kind of nuclear interacts and impacts our lives And people don't kind of don't realize how hidden it is in everyday things. So, for example, like the Les Paul guitar was influenced by a a nuclear cloud. The bikini was named after the bikini test. So those are something those are a couple of things that are kind of iconic that people don't realize that were influenced by by nuclear science. But other things like medicine, nuclear reactors, there's a lot of connections that can be made. And I like doing it this way because a lot of times we're given a bunch of information, but no way to connect it. And so instead of giving a bunch of information um, about a bunch of different topics, I am looking at just kind of one topic and then bringing all the information and building it around it. So it's an interest of mine. It gets it, It's a way for me to interview a lot of people that I've always wanted to talk to. It's kind of an excuse for me to continuously learn about the topic. Absolutely. I've been listening to the episodes. I've been sort of catching up on the back catalog and I have been absolutely enthralled 
by the people you've brought on. Thank um, you. And, and just as you say, Shelley, there's every episode that I've listened to, there's a couple where the connections to the nuclear are obvious, like the most recent episode on uh, the Chernobyl disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's the iconic nuclear disaster, probably for a lot of people who don't know much about the field otherwise. But then there right. are so many other aspects about notions of masculinity and the nuclear accidents that even though Nathan and I kind of geek out on this stuff and have been, you know, uh, sort of going through the archives for years, accidents I'd never heard about. And people who really know their stuff. Let me just ask Nathan briefly, which so far has been your favorite episode? I would say that if you're listening to our podcast, uh, an episode that I guarantee you will enjoy is episode 15, which is titled Death by Control Rod. Oh, yeah. (laughs) uh, For any listeners of the Uncover Up, I would direct them to that one and say that should be the next episode of anything that you listen to. Thank you. uh, And of course, I would also recommend, I don't think it's out yet, but I would recommend the episode that Lee and I are on in which we discuss our favorite thing to discuss, which we're about to discuss again right now, the Cold War. Oh, it is. I, I think we all share the love of the Cold War and the craziness that goes along with it. And, you know, I, I think we've already discussed that, you know, were there any adults in the room during that whole 40 year period? Before uh, we started recording, we spent about 40 minutes just discussing our favorite Cold War movies. I should say that when we say that we love the Cold War, it's it's sort of a it's a complicated <laughs> love. Like yeah, it's, it's mixed in with a lot of regret, with horror. And we were talking about this as well. The main thing is just the the tremendous waste of opportunity. Yes. We had that period of time in the second half of the 20th century where we could have made some incredible gains in technology that could have improved the lives of human beings. And instead, we spent so much of it on the sort of thing that we're going to talk about today. Because what we're talking about today is we're going to be looking at some really bizarre top secret experiments that were carried out under the supervision and funding of a program that we're, of an organization that we're going to be talking a little bit about that I'm sure that our listeners are sort of familiar with. And that is DARPA or ARPA, depending on what year it is. Da, da, da. Exactly. Well, feels like that that needed a da, da, da. Yeah, but it is a very complicated relationship with the Cold War. And it, and it it is when I tell people how excited I am about nuclear weapons or when I say how exciting the Manhattan Project was. And it's not that I think, you know, the U.S. should have developed nuclear weapons or that I think we should have the, the race to to develop as many as possible. It's that the science is amazing. The characters involved. If this right. was fiction everybody would be reading it. And and sometimes it's even so crazy that you think it is fiction and you have to just kind of double check. And so for me, it's that the story and the science and the characters are just, you just can't tear yourself away from the train wreck. And today we're going to be looking at some mad scientists, looking at some like extraordinary top secret experiments. Uh, We will briefly touch on uh, bees, and human exoskeletons. So we got a lot to go through. So I think the best thing to do is we need to get into that Cold War state of mind. So very quickly, because again, any listener of this podcast has heard me talk about the Cold War ad infinitum. Very quickly, let's just get the bumper sticker version of what's going on here. World War II, the Soviet Union and the United States are allies together 
fighting the Axis powers. Basically, as soon as World War II ends, the ideologies of communism and capitalism cannot stand the fact that each other exists. Coexistence is impossible. They are an offense to each other. And so then, again, almost immediately, we have the situation where the Soviets and the Americans go from allies to enemies. But the Americans aren't too shook up about it because, of course, it's 1945, 46, 47, 48. What do the Americans have that no one else has that will guarantee American safety forever? Is this where the sound effect of a big bomb comes in? We could put a sound effect of a big bomb there. (laughs) And we will right there. But then, of course, Lee, 1949, what goes on? The Soviets get their hands on the bomb, how to make one, and make one themselves. And now we move from one superpower having the ultimate weapon to more than one, and uh, even more problematically, uh, the enemy. You know, once, you know, the Soviets have all of their troops in Europe, we have the bomb. It's even then. But once the Soviets get the bomb, we feel the U.S. feels that the Soviets now have the upper hand. And the United States, the people, the government is so terrified of communism. The saying was better dead than red. So, you know, the the government, the people of the U.S. thought that it was better to actually die than to become communist. So that race, I think, to develop bigger and better weapons was inevitable. Mm. Now, the way we were able to do that is by nuclear technology. You know, if it wasn't for that mutually assured destruction, if it wasn't knowing that we could both kill each other at any time, then you wouldn't have had the competition that we see in every other area of life during the Cold War. I mean, we had to... We had to fight on any surface possible because we couldn't actually fight each other in the battlefield. The space race really makes a lot more sense when you put it in the context of showing off your missile technology to your enemy. But from the internal logic of the Cold War, of course, it makes perfect sense. The the best way to look at the Cold War, and if you're offended by this metaphor, that's good. It means you're not a psychopath. But the best way to look at the Cold War is sort of an immense game. And in fact, overtly, one of the most Cold War of theorists was a man named John Ben Neumann, who was a brilliant mathematical mind. He worked on the Manhattan Project for the first A-bomb, worked on the first computers, the first hydrogen bomb. He was an extremely influential thinker. And he developed this idea of game theory. This this notion that you can basically reduce any kind of interaction between adversaries to basically like a child's game. And the goal of any kind of game is to minimize the amount that you can lose and maximize the amount that you can win. And that philosophy was so influential in the rest of the Cold War as uh, things like the arms race, which seemed from the outside to be absurd. Of course, there were so many things that humanity could have been spending its time on. But from the internal perspective of being locked in this game with the Soviets and the Americans, there was an internal rationalization to it. It's like, uh, it's like the famous example of the prisoner's dilemma, which is this classic thought experiment. Like, Lee, you and I, let's say we just robbed Shelley's house. Hey. And, and we've been caught. Good news, we've been caught. Good. 
But the cops don't have much on us. They only have enough on us so that we can be charged maybe with trespassing and Lee gets one year and I get one year. But that's not very much. So what the cops do is they split Lee and I up and they go to Lee and they say, listen, Lee, if you rat out Nathan, he gets 10 years, you go free. But then they pull me aside and they're like, listen, Nathan, you rat Lee out. He gets 10 years, you go free. If we both rat each other out, we both get five years. Now, obviously the best thing for us to do is to not rat each other out. And then we both get one year. And then there's only two years between the two of us. And then we go free. But unfortunately, from a game theory perspective, the rational thing for me to do is rat Lee out. Because there's two options. I don't know what Lee's going to do. If he rats me out, then it's in my advantage to also rat him out because then at least I tie. If he doesn't rat me out, then I should still rat him out because then I win. And so what'll happen is if we're both following through on this logic, it means that Lee and I very rationally will both rat each other out and then we'll both be worse off than we would have been otherwise. And you can see the comparison with the Cold War. Uh, Instead of ratting out, it's it's building or even using atomic weapons. If the Soviets don't use atomic weapons and the Americans do, the Americans win. If the Soviets do use atomic weapons and the Americans do as well, then at least it's a tie. The best situation would be if neither of them did, but in the game that they have set up, that's simply not going to be the case. And so instead, we're going to get locked into this absurd, ridiculous, destructive child's game. I mean, I I just wanted to quote, uh, nobody wins in nuclear war, but (laughs) I mean, it's, you started out by saying, if you, if you aren't offended by this, then you're a psychopath. And and I, I, as you were saying, I'm like, where are your morals and values? Like (laughs) you're both horrible people. Like just don't rat him out. Like, so, yeah, I mean, that Shelly is not a psychopath. <laughs> Thank you very much. Or I've just learned to mimic very well. That's the thing about psychopaths. <laughs> it, it solves problems where you don't have all the information. You don't know exactly, you know, how many bombs your opponent has or, or, or exactly whether they're willing to use them. Exactly. And that's when this strategy, which is rather off-putting, uh, it's a very helpful guide, but the, you, you mentioned it, the Minimax strategy, which is, it's a kind of a pessimistic approach to the world, which says, look, given the four options, you win big, you lose big, you kind of lose, you kind of win. Your best strategy is to minimize the worst case scenario. I was just thinking by that rationale, then we should have nuked Russia. Exactly. That's what makes game theory so terrifying. Exactly. It's so terrifying (laughs) that people like von Neumann were very influential in the administration. Kennedy had generals who were pushing this. Shelley is approaching it like a rational human being, not somebody locked in a Cold War mentality. I mean, you're basically the prisoner who's like, let's not rat each other out, okay? Like this. And that's both countries not using the nuclear option. But I think the Minimax strategy, as, as Nathan is saying, is what a lot of generals were like, look, if we do it first, okay, 
We cause a lot of damage, but at least, you know, it's not the worst case scenario, which would be full blown, you know, nuclear war that probably engulfs the entire world. And and it's not our people, so it doesn't matter. Exactly. Right. And it's it's a shame. And, you know, we would rather it not happen. But this is the kind of mess we're stuck with. But also, I think we might even be over over exaggerating how much those American generals cared about American lives because they had done the math. People like von Neumann were doing the math and they were like, you know what? Maybe we lose 100 million humans, American humans, but that's enough to rebuild. We can get an economy going again. I mean, uh, if you read um, the emergency plans book, which uh, basically goes through from 1959, which goes through, okay, so let's say the Soviets bomb this and this and this and this, what happens? What do we do? The plans are so obscene in terms of this is obvious, like, okay, just to give you one that Nathan and I were uh, enjoying before we we went live. Uh, Enjoying. Yes, enjoying in scare quotes, enjoying in the way we all three of us enjoy the Cold War. One of the plans was in the event of a Soviet nuclear attack, there was going to be large Uh, cement pipes laid in gutters along major highways, and people were to get out of their cars, get into these pipes, and then they were going to be sealed up. Like Uh, a bulldozer would drive by and just- A bulldozer would drive by and seal it up, and then the bombs would hit, and then hopefully, you know, somebody will take you out later. And when, when American citizens heard that this was like actually what the plan was for- a nuclear attack, I think people got even more scared than they were just. And and I think because this emergency plans book was making the rounds with the decision makers, they were scared. And if you're looking at that as your realistic alternative, this is policy, maybe pushing the button and getting rid of the enemy is not that unreasonable. I mean, which then leads to, of course, well, how do we stop the missiles from coming into our land, right? Like, well, this in. is this is exactly the problem, right? Because if you look at the history of warfare, there's always this. There's always been arms races. I mean, we've been talking about the nuclear arms race, but there's always been arms races. There's even arms races in evolution, as rabbits get better ears and wolves get a bit faster. Uh, in World War One, defense was winning because you had machine guns, trenches, and barbed wire, and offense. All they had was a guy with a rifle walking towards. Obviously, that's not gonna. That's not going to be effective. In World War II, when you see things like tanks, then all of a sudden offense gets the upper hand. But then towards the end of the war, you get bazookas and panzerschrecks, and a 14-year-old kid with like a panzerschreck hiding behind a wheelbarrow can take out the biggest tank. Uh, bomber planes get faster and better armed, but then jet interceptors basically make the propeller bomber completely obsolete as a weapon. Russian and American bomber planes get faster and interceptors get faster and get armed with rockets and missiles, including nuclear-tipped missiles like the Genie. But then there's an event that basically throws the whole scales into chaos that makes defense impossible. And of course, that event occurs when Sputnik flies across American airspace. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. Well, I mean, Sputnik itself, of course, it was like the size of a beach ball, and all it did was go beep, beep, beep. 
so yeah, I yeah, the thing itself couldn't do much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if, like, if, it, if it landed on your house, you'd probably be fine. But it's, <laughs> but it's what it represented, because what it represented at that moment was that there had been a lot of talk about how to shoot down Soviet bombers. They couldn't shoot down Sputnik. And so that's what that represented to uh, American planners. They're like, wait, there's nothing we can do. It might have just been a little metal beach ball that was going beep, beep, beep. But it was over American airspace and there was nothing that they could do about it. If the Soviets could launch something like that into space over top of America, they could drop bombs into America with missiles. And you can't shoot down a missile. You can't intercept a missile. Or can you? No, you can't. Meanwhile, the American government is doing a really kind of mediocre job of getting their space program up. They were having a lot of, despite the fact that they had grabbed all those Nazi scientists in Operation Paperclip, despite the fact that they were throwing a lot of money at it, they couldn't seem to get the space program, I was going to say off the ground, that's terrible. Oh, no, it's pretty good. Pretty oh. accurate, I think. Yeah, well, uh, okay. I like it. Okay, it'll stay in. And the, the question, I think, becomes, without the Cold War, would you have had a space program? The answer there is definitely not at that time. I mean, you wouldn't have had Kennedy saying we're going to get a man to the moon. You wouldn't have had everyone trying for rocket technology. You wanted to put nuclear weapons on top of those missiles, but you had to develop those missiles first. I mean, I think the connection between the space race and nuclear weapons and the Cold War, like that all had to happen at that time for all that money to be pumped into the program. You know, what's really interesting is that it sort of it went both ways. The head of the Soviet space program was telling the Soviet leaders that he was designing missiles that would hold nuclear weapons, but his interest was genuinely to put a human in space. And so he okay. was using the Cold War, interestingly, sort of in a weird opposite thing. He was using the Cold War as an excuse to get humans up into space. But Well, I think the scientists were genuinely interested in getting a human into space. Just like I think people are genuinely interested in going to Mars now. The question is, who's going to pay for it? And I don't think you're going to get the government or the military to pay for your genuine interest in getting a person into space. No, not unless you can establish or we can level a city. Right. See that they will pay for it. Yeah. What's in it for me? Yeah. How Um, does this apply to game theory? How does this help us win this game? Yes. So, yes. So we have now bombs that are utterly destructive in in terms of our narration. We have bombs that are unbelievably destructive, which really tip the balance in terms of offensive warfare. There's nothing you can do about defense. What would it have looked like if nuclear bombs or missiles had rained down on an American city? How, How bad would that have been? I mean, we've seen movies about it, obviously, but as far as what a nuclear weapon is actually capable of, what would that have looked like? How many? But let's start just with one in one major city. I think maybe that's a bit easier to absorb. And then we Mm -hmm. can just, you know, 20 times that, 100 times that. Right. And then we'll work our way up to Zarbama. Oh, my God. Zarbama. So if you don't know this tool yet, this is where I always go when someone says, well, what would it look like? Um, I don't know if you know Alex Weatherstein. Um, He created something called NukeMap. That's when you can type in the size of the bomb and where you drop it? Yes, that's exactly what it is. So let's nuke Chicago. Okay. Ivy Mike, first H-bomb, 10 megatons. There we go. I think that's a good one. Why don't we drop a hydrogen bomb? Ivy Mike, 
we'll drop Ivy Mike on Chicago. We are going to do an airburst, meaning that it, it will not hit the surface. So this is kind of like least damaging. Well, relatively uh, speaking, I'm going to wave my hands. Yeah. Um, we're going to look at casualties and radioactive fallout. All right. So we're going <laughs> to, we're not gonna, a psychopath. We've already established that earlier. Not a psychopath. We're going to detonate it. Yeah. So if you are within 33 kilometers of the center of Chicago, then you will receive third degree burns. Okay. Which are horrifying. Like that's one of the worst pains a person can be in. Your, yes. your nerves are exposed. Your flesh is sheared off. Anything that you're wearing gets melted onto you. Yes. It, it's agonizing. And it, is, it is this, uh, when people give images like mental images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And you see all these children's drawings. There are drawings of people walking out with their arms out with what looks like, like black skin hanging down. Oh my God. That's because they had third degree burns from the bomb. And then the pressure comes after the, the thermal blast comes, then the pressure comes. And so basically you've just charred the skin and then the, the blast comes and rips off all the skin that's been charred. So that's why. So, and most of those people died because then you get infection and especially in a war torn place, you know, the, the, the care that you're going to get isn't, isn't good at that point. You guys are turning me into a hawk here though, because again, if this is, if I'm a policymaker and this is like legitimately on the table as a threat, now a lot more is permissible in terms of defense is one bomb yeah the the i mean at the height i forgot how many i forget how many bombs but you know thousands of these existed on both sides i mean six seven thousand on each side i mean something that it was often tossed around in my childhood was that back in the early 80s we had enough uh, nuclear weapons to basically destroy the world would you agree with that assessment when we talk about stockpiles now not all of them are actually out and ready for deployment. We have a lot of bombs that, you know, if there was a war and we said, okay, go now, those bombs wouldn't, aren't deployable immediately. So yeah, in the eighties, I, I'm not positive. I've heard that too. And I've never tried to verify it myself. It's safe to Alex, say we could have really wrecked the place though. Oh no, we could have destroyed each other. Absolutely. Because, you know, this is one bomb in one city the total, the light blast damage would be 43 kilometers. That's, that's a radius. So the diameter then is, you know, about 90 kilometers. So all of those people are going to be injured in one city. And those people are going to be migrating to other areas. And then every city that you bomb, those people are going to be migrating. Then there's going to be food shortages. There's going to be crop damage. There's going to be infrastructure damage. There's going to be disease. There's going to be a lot of disease. Cholera. There's, going to, there's going to be cholera. There's not going to be medicine available. You've just uh, put radiation into Lake Michigan there. So now you don't have a water source. Uh, so there's a lot of things that happen that, although not immediately devastating to everyone, would be gradually devastating. So we, I think we haven't I even would, discussed the, the radiation effects. No. And that's not with radiation. That is just the blast. Yeah. So 
pretty much you just you pretty much just want to go in the initial blast. Yeah, you right? want to be a, a, like the center of it because then you just get turned to plasma pretty much instantly, don't you? Yep. Yep. You, you want to be at ground zero so you just die immediately. Okay. That, uh, that's my. That's, that's my. Good, that's advice. A good some advice. Tip. There's some advice for all the listeners. You get yeah, under that tip. bomb. Get under it as fast as you can. Um, I mean, so, the, the thing is, we're not, we're not kidding about this. That's genuinely true. Like, it would have been better to be immediately incinerated than to have to live through the absolute horror show that uh, a post-nuclear world would have looked like. Oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. Unless you buried yourself at the side of the road, then you'd probably be fine. Right, right, right. In those concrete and, yeah, you tubes, they'd be you, fine. Oh, could you so, imagine what one of those would smell like after oh like a week? I mean, not to mention just the absolute chaos. I mean, people are not nice. No, I don't. I don't think yeah. I would just want to be around people. I, I don't believe that people would be, you know, it would bring out the good in people. The notion that this was official policy, I think, speaks to the fact that nobody really had a, a coherent solution for how to move forward with these kinds of weapons. I mean, they existed and we got as far as talking about uh, preventing threats or, you know, striking first, but actually what a war would look like. I think that's pretty shocking to realize that, okay, again, we don't know how to, how to do this at all. So this is what the American government decides in the late fifties after Sputnik goes over and goes beep, beep, beep. They're like, okay, we are too slow. We need to speed this up. We need some way of streamlining it. We need to bring the mad science. And so an organization is formed, the Advanced Research Projects Agency or ARPA, which later would become the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA, which is probably what people are more familiar with. I'm gonna go through very quickly some of the stuff that DARPA has worked on over the years. The AR-15 rifle, or the M16, uh, that was a DARPA project. The ARPANET. The yeah. internet. It, it's extraordinary. It's what we're using right now to talk to each other. This was originally a DARPA project, the ARPANET. Lee, the Aspen movie map. You went on that. What'd you think? I thought I was looking at like a Google map of Aspen, Colorado. Like, I'm just like, you could wander around and you can look at stuff. I was absolutely blown away when you told me when that was created. 1978, DARPA funds basically what would turn into Google Earth. Battery-powered human exoskeletons. Wait, yeah, what? which if you're a fan of G.I. Joe, that was like, they use those a lot. I yeah, it's think. like a, It's like a suit that you could put on and then you could run carrying like 200 pounds and you could run like 50 miles an hour. Uh, as it turned out, wearing the suits was more tiring than just not wearing the suits at all. It didn't, it didn't actually work. <laughs> but a better plan, bee bomb detectors. This one's one of my favorite because I like, I like bees. Like real bees or like little robots that looked like bees? Honeybees. Train honeybees to sniff out bombs. This was a DARPA project. Okay. Because if you could convince honeybees that explosives smell like nectar, then the bees will flock to the explosives and stick their tiny little tongues out. And when you see a bunch of bees sticking their tiny little tongues out at something, you run. Uh, they also had, uh, they were working on a sniper rifle that shot guided bullets, codename Exacto. I like that one. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting. They, had, they were working on something called the Silent Talk Project, which was basically telepathy. And, right. and robots galore. So many androids and robots and dog robots and just robots everywhere. When I think of DARPA, I think about Q from James Bond, 
right? You're a mad scientist now with, you know, hugely funded laboratory that will make you a toy to solve any kind of problem. You know, it's like, oh, you need bomb sniffing bees? Sure. You know, give it to Q. And a lot of people listening to this probably have DARPA funded technology coursing through their veins because Moderna received DARPA funding to work on their messenger RNA vaccine. So if you got the Moderna vaccine, congratulations, you've got some DARPA in you. Yeah. Did you get the- uh, You got Moderna? Moderna? Oh, you got DARPA in you. I'm so jealous. I know. I, I was got jealous. DARPA. <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be the only DARPA funding I ever get or come close to. Maybe that's just because you're not thinking big enough. Because let's look at some of the big nuclear-related projects that okay. DARPA, DARPA was throwing some money at. Okay, give me some ideas for my next funding cycle. Now, Shelly, if you want to get some DARPA funding, yes, uh, please. I've, I've got I've got a guy that you should maybe model yourself after. Okay. Uh, he was an elevator repair person, and as an elevator repair person, he was you know working away during World War II in Greece when the Nazis took over Athens. He was put to work in a truck factory. At work at this truck factory, to keep himself amused, he taught himself German, which is impressive. And then started reading the physics journals that his bosses had left around their offices. And apparently he did a good job of both learning German and reading these journals because post-war he starts writing letters to the University of California Radiation Laboratory and to a place called the Lawrence Laboratory. I, I'm familiar with both of those. You, you yes. might have heard about that Lawrence have, yes. Laboratory, right, Shelley? And and the other one too. And so he get, they, they start getting these letters from this Greek elevator repairman, and they, they're sort of treating them like, oh, look at this, this silly guy, until he sends them plans for a particle accelerator. And they realize this guy's legit. He might be a self-taught elevator mechanic, but he has clearly done his homework. He knows what he's talking about. And so he actually gets hired by the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory. Uh, not immediately, because at first they were concerned that he might be a Soviet spy. Because they were concerned that everyone's a Soviet spy. But once they figure out he isn't, he gets hired by the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory. And on the day that Sputnik goes around over top of the United States, he bursts into his boss's office, screaming, they're coming, they're coming, referring to the Soviets. And he has himself a plan. He's got a plan to deal with Soviet missiles. And the plan is this. What if we build a force field around the Earth composed of charged particles? And this is where I'm extremely relieved and excited to have a person who knows what she's talking about on the podcast, because I am way over my skis when I start talking about this stuff. So as far as I understand, the Earth is a magnet, right? It has a magnetic field, yes. Okay. And uh, what what is a charged particle? I mean, my glove answer is it's a particle that has a positive or negative charge. Okay. I'm still learning. (laughs) Okay. So I think he's talking about electrons, which is a electron is a fundamental particle that has a a negative charge. His plan is that if we could fill that magnetic field with charged particles. Yeah. So I, I believe he wants to ionize the atmosphere, meaning that he wants to take pretty much the elements that are there and he wants to knock out an electron. And if you do that, then you create an atom that has more protons than it does electrons. And they're what's called ionized. Okay. And so then they would be captured by the magnetic field. And what would happen if you did succeed in doing that? If you succeeded in uh, in ionizing the atmosphere, what would that do to protect the earth from nuclear missiles? So it's not going to destroy a missile. 
That's not the point. What it's going to do is the missile is going to go through this field and it's going to pretty much like short circuit the firing mechanism. It's going to short circuit the electronics. And so it'll just fall to the earth and not explode, basically. Oh, okay. So so this would then be the much needed defense to the indefensible bomb, the, the, the thing for right. which we don't have a defense for. So the right. idea is we would somehow create this zone of ionized particles. Now, was it over the entire world or just the United States? So his idea was not, he gets a lot of credit for this idea, but it wasn't really unique to him. It wasn't just out of the middle of nowhere because we had done testing early on with um, something called uh, hardtack teak and hardtack orange, which were tests that showed that electronics were affected by kind of these electromagnetic pulses from nuclear weapons. So the community already knew that a weapon would cause uh, electronics to kind of short circuit. The other thing that Christophilos had on his side was that Explorer 1 was a satellite that went up and discovered the Van Allen belt. Well, Van Allen discovered the Van Allen belt from the first satellite that went up, which was Explorer 1, which is this radiation belt that encircles the Earth. And so basically his idea was that you could create this artificial Van Allen belt by by ionizing the atmosphere artificially. But how would you do that? How would you go about artificially ionizing the atmosphere? When you hear about this idea, it sounds crazy because we haven't actually gotten into it yet. But but the more you look into it, the like physics wise, the crazier it is and how like on the surface, I can see why defense people thinks this is a great idea. But what I can't get is why a group of his peers actually said, yeah, this is a good idea. Because scientifically, like physics wise, it's just it, it, it's not from, from, what I, from what I understand, he was extremely enthusiastic. And I guess maybe that enthusiasm was somehow a bit contagious. I mean, and, and wasn't it also at a time when there was sort of an appetite for this kind of thing? I mean, look at all of the, the nuclear plans that people were working on. There was there was a plan to stop hurricanes with nuclear bombs. Yes. There was a plan to, like, make farmland out of desert with nuclear bombs. Yeah, Project Plowshare, which was Edward Teller's way of kind of trying to circumvent the test ban treaty that was coming. So the test ban treaty was, you know, that you couldn't test weapons, but if you could find a way to use them for engineering and civil purposes, that wasn't testing, that was engineering. So if you were farming with them, that's fine. That's fine. If you were using them for um, creating rivers and streams and lakes, that's fine. If you are making roadways through mountains, that's fine because that's not testing, that's engineering. And we weren't the only ones doing this. The Soviets were doing it too. So pretty much, you know, it's trying to do what you want to do. It's trying to bend the rules to your will. Okay. So back to Christophilus. And this plan about ionizing the atmosphere. It's um, not a bad plan. Let me tell you, it's not a bad yeah. plan. And I, as isn't. I said, I, I'm sold. So so you got to send a couple of bombs up there to do it. Is that right? You got to detonate some bombs in the upper atmosphere? 
Yeah, initially, just to see if it'll work. Because the question is, is, is if you ionize the atmosphere, so we have this natural radiation belt that's that's going on, you know, the sun's taking care of that. But if we were to make one ourselves, first, can we do it? Would it work with the bomb? How long is it going to last? And will it actually, you know, knock out electronics? Those are a lot of questions. Those are a lot of, ma- a lot of maybes. So, you know, if you, if you develop kind of this force field, how long, how long will it last? And, you know, is it going to cover the whole earth, just the U.S., just part of the U.S.? You know, are you going to protect the East Coast, the West Coast? Certainly okay. not Canada. You don't care about them. No, no. So, okay. So, so it sounds like this just needs to be tested, right? Like exactly. You, you yeah. take a boat out somewhere, you throw up a few bombs, you see what happens. And, and best case scenario, you got like a blanket of ionized electrons that will protect you. Pretty soon we're going to bump into that testing moratorium. So like, yep. right. this has got to be done in a big hurry. You, you got to do it now. So you have Sputnik, which alerts everybody how dangerous this is. And then you have a test ban moratorium just like around the corner. So if you want to get some testing done, you got to do it now. So what do they do? They go out, right? They go out to the middle of nowhere. Well, they put um, together a task force, task force 88. Now this is totally top secret stuff, but it's also huge. It's a huge project because it's basically like a little fleet of ships. You want to sail down to the South Atlantic for reasons I don't understand. It's something to do about the Earth's magnetic field. It, it like dips down a little bit there. You've got an aircraft carrier, seaplane tender, guided missile ships. You've got destroyers. This is a fleet. And it's, what it was a big plan. Yeah. yeah, that's a huge plan. Thousands of people trying to keep it completely secret. And the plan is they're going to put some, I've heard that they were 1.7 kiloton warheads. Shall we, that, that seems like a, sm, a small bomb to me, a small nuclear bomb, 1.7 kiloton. It's small. Yeah. So they weren't, uh, that, they weren't like massive Mm-mm. world records or anything like that, but they were still nuclear warheads. They mount them on X-17A missiles. And then in August, they just start shooting them up into the air. What could have gone wrong? Now, I understood that they did take some, uh, they did obviously take some precautions. They had, uh, is this right? They had film strips hanging up? They would have had film strips to see if there was uh, radiation leakage at the time. Exactly. But, I mean, it's pretty crude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like basically having a canary. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they would have all had like kind of dosimeters on, but that's also saying like, oh yeah, remember last week you got too much radiation. So that doesn't help either. Right. And, and they were also there for like a week and they did this test three times. And so they would have been cum- cumulatively exposed to more radiation than you would want, I would think. Did it say in the report how much radiation was given off in the, on the, in the sea when it was exploded in the atmosphere? From what I had read, that was part of the data that had been lost, which the the Veterans Administration was extremely concerned about because they had gotten reports of a lot of these guys developing leukemia. And so they said, it seems awfully, well, isn't that great for you? Isn't it convenient that you happen to lose all of the evidence about how much radiation these guys were dosed with? With respect to the actual safety of the missile launches, like I, of course, can't speak to any of the radiation stuff, but... So, I mean, at this point, we're talking about Project Argus, right? Yes. Oh, we haven't even mentioned it. 
Of course. No. <laughs> right. That's it. That's that's it. So the, the whole thing is targeted to Argus, which is why all these missiles are named Argus 1, 2, and 3. And I, I mean, the idea of doing this was not actually bad at the time because the military didn't actually know how things like manned satellites and space vehicles and anything else was going to react if a weapon went off in space. As far as testing goes, it, it wasn't a bad idea. I, I don't think we should be testing at all. But I mean, as far as that goes, they were also testing things like radar signals and defense systems. So like, how is this going to impact our, our, our land-based defense systems? Like, And they did find that it did interfere with radar. It did yep. interfere with electronics. And so partially and, it did, it was sort of successful. And apparently right, it was also- the, Beautiful. Yeah. And that was from the beta particles being released into the atmosphere. So the beta particles in, in uh, they react with the atmosphere and they create this pretty blue color. What could have gone wrong with one of these bombs let off in the atmosphere? Like, you know, it's 1958. We're doing a test here. So I say to you, Shelley, look, we're going to take down a bunch of bombs and we're going to try this experiment out. Is there, do you have any misgivings here? Like besides the fact that I might just, you know, the bomb might not, might accidentally go off on the ship because of a faulty launch mechanism or something. Like, is there anything as a, a nuclear physicist where you might be like, this, this could go sideways uh, because there's a bunch of stuff we don't know or because there's some variables that you guys are, you know, assuming you're just going to be fine, which might not be. Yeah, it's a vacuum. Yeah, I don't know how a nuclear weapons, I don't know how an explosion is going to work in a vacuum. And I know that like, so for example, to catch the atmosphere on fire, somehow you have to have like the sustainable fission or fusion. Could it happen? I mean, I could also spontaneously combust, right? It's possible. Right. It's not probable, especially when you're using small bombs. And those guys would have known by doing massive amount of calculations, what was going to happen in all of the situations that you could possibly think of. However, there's so many unknowns when you're talking about space, because at the time we did not know much about space. Van Allen's belt was just discovered. We only had, I mean, when they were doing project Argus, they had just sent up the third or fourth satellite into space ever to detect things like they set up what they set up the Explorer five and six or four and five, just to detect the radiation from these tests, even doing all the calculations that you can possibly do to think of all the different variables that could happen. You don't know what's in space to be able to account for everything. So I guess, yeah, maybe setting the atmosphere on fire would have been a higher concern than I'm making it out to be now because with their minds, right, perhaps it was more of a chance because like I said, in order to set the atmosphere on fire, you have to have the sustainable fission or fusion reaction, but because they didn't know what was up there, maybe they did think that perhaps there was something up there to be able, that was there to enable a sustainable reaction. And if there was, then yeah, that would have been a, a big risk. It's, it's the danger of not knowing what you don't know. Right. And the question is, is how crazy were these guys? Did they know what they didn't know? Or were they taking a chance that they were kind of brazen enough and scared enough of the Soviets that they were saying, it doesn't matter if we know or if we don't know, we have to take this chance. 
And I'm guessing it was, we have to take this chance because it doesn't matter what we know or what chances we take. We have to beat the Soviets. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. It's just fantastic. But uh, did it work? So Um, did it work? Did did Argus provide us with a missile defense shield? uh, Did it work? Yes and no. Uh, Did it provide? Did it work? Yes. I mean, work is a loose loose term. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I try and tell my boss too. Yeah. (laughs) Did it provide us with the defense shield? No. Okay. Um, So did it work? Well, we talked about how they wanted to know how it would impact their radar and how it would impact satellites and stuff. And they did find, as, as Nathan mentioned, that it did impact their radar. So they figured out that they could just change the frequency on the radar and that would be okay. So no problem there. So in fact, the effect was confirmed is what like the reports say, like confirmed. What happened is, like I said, the Explorer four and five or three and four, two of the explorers were launched and confirmed that there was in fact um, a shell that was produced with electrons and it lasted about a week. Now, um, so the, the bomb debris and electrons were caught in this upper atmosphere, creating a shell, which is what Christophilus said would happen. However, you can't predict where electrons are going to go. The, what happened then is the electrons got trapped in the magnetic field and they like spiraled down to earth. And so it didn't really last very long. Okay. But as now, we said, was pretty. It was pretty, and and yeah, I'm sure that's why they did it. Too. The chief scientist at DARPA later would say, "Okay, so like clearly didn't work." But then he said, "Quote: There could, however, be another Earth, another planet with opposing superpowers, where such a shield might be possible and make a difference." End quote. No. Yes. Where did you find? I didn't see that. So his point was, it's like, okay, so it didn't work on Earth because of the nature of the magnetic field around Earth. But, you know, maybe somewhere and he uh, it could have been tongue in cheek as well. But he's saying, you know, maybe on some planet this would work. Not on this planet, but on some planet. They're having their own Cold War. They should totally do this. It'll be great. But on Earth. bah. No. So, I, I mean, it didn't produce that kind of crippling effect of like the missiles coming in and like dropping to the ground because they're, you know, electronics shorted. But it did mean that they said, well, you know, it kind of worked. What happens if we have a follow up experiment in which we detonate a bigger bomb? Because this is just a tiny little bomb. That was the problem. The problem was we didn't have a big enough bomb. That's always That's the problem. The problem. Always That's always the problem. The solution is always bigger bomb. Well, I was going to say, well, surely they did not go through with this. Well, they they tried to perform something called Willow Argus, which would have used a, a megaton warhead, but the moratorium went into effect, so they okay. couldn't. In the end, eventually they did. In uh, 62, there was a Starfish uh, Prime bomb that okay. went off in the upper atmosphere. Was, was that Project Fishbowl? Yes, in yeah, Project okay. Fishbowl. Now, the difference is, is that, you know, Project Argus was really, Nathan, like you said, it was it was top secret, but it got out quite quickly. There were so many people involved in it. Like, how did they think they were going to be able to keep this a secret? No idea. And actually, this goes back to something that we often talk about with conspiracy theories. The more people who are in on something were bad at keeping secrets, the less likely it will be that they'll be able to 
like keep it under wraps. And this, like within months, I think, this thing was on the cover of the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. So this didn't work for a missile shield, but DARPA's not done. DARPA's got more plans. 1961, the adorably named Bambi program. Now, we won't go into much detail on the Bambi program. Bambi, I mean, it sounds adorable. It stands for Ballistic Missile Boost Intercept, which is adorable. It was a, a, like a bunch of different plans they were throwing money at. Here's my favorite of the Bambi project. You build massive orbital space stations. And when the Soviets fire up a missile, the space stations shoot out a big net and it just catches the missile. Didn't Christophilus actually suggest an actual net? Like this is not a metaphorical net. No, no, Am this, I is, wrong about this, this isn't a metaphorical net. This would like this be is a like net. an actual net. It's a just, real net. It's a real uh, net. A space like net. a fishing net. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Bambi was canceled in 1963 as being impractical. It took them two years to recognize that the space station net was an impractical plan. Okay, but moving forward, here's here's where I wanted to get it. This is where I wanted to arrive. This is where I wanted us to go. Now, this is frustrating to me because we have almost no information on this. We know that it, that it was a plan. We know that a lot of money was thrown at it. Project, Project Seesaw. Seesaw. This is another Nicholas Christophilus joint. Now, I, I first come across Seesaw when I'm researching uh, the Tesla death ray, because there was a lot of discussion in the 40s and 50s whether uh, Tesla, Nikola Tesla, had actually invented this sort of particle death ray that could be used to shoot down planes and destroy ships and things like that, and whether the FBI went and raided his house and, and what happened to all those plans and everything. And as I was researching that, I came to the conclusion that Tesla at that point in his life probably hadn't manufactured a death ray. But in all of my death ray research, I, I started seeing this name, this Project Seesaw. And so I start looking into it. And basically, this is another DARPA project to try to protect us from the nuclear missiles. It's a particle beam weapon that would be used to shoot them out of the sky. Not exactly. Like a- now, again, this is why we've got expertise on the show today. Because I, I was thinking like a Star Trek kind of laser. Pew, beam. pew, pew. Exactly. Pew, pew. So like uh, Nathan said, there is one document about this project and I scoured it. This is the rabbit hole I went down because there had to be like some piece of information in this document that made sense. Which document are you looking at? This is the only document that I can find available, which is Project Seesaw written by the Jasons in February of 1968. It's the uh, Jasons like, like the, the yes. mad scientists of DARPA. And it's such, it was a very frustrating document I found. Yes. I, wanted, I wanted a lot more. Well, <laughs> We've uh, got all the key players at the beginning. Especially since the in the first paragraph, they said that we will pay no attention to matters of engineering or system design. That's a hell of a first paragraph for a project. <laughs> okay. So when I said not exactly, so the reason that this comes up with Project Argus is, so Project Argus probably has more information than you can possibly get through. Yeah, It was called um, like the greatest scientific experiment, like 
once it got out in the New York Times, the government just said, oh, to hell with it. Just release things like let them add it. Let them have all this information. And so you can find so much information about Argus. Then you get to Seesaw and there is one document. What the plan is, is to use instead of creating this field uh, to protect us uh, using a nuclear weapon like they did in Project Argus, the plan is, is to create this electron shell by using an, uh, an accelerator to accelerate the electrons from Earth to then shoot them up into space and ionize the atmosphere from the ground instead of having to use a nuclear weapon to do it. That's the idea. So, I mean, when you look at it that way, it's like, that seems reasonable. Mm, totally and, reasonable. And, and to set the stage a little bit, because, you know, the document's like four pages long. Yeah. So I looked at the people who were on the committee, on the Jasons at the time. And these are not nobodies that are on this committee. We have a couple people who got their PhDs in Berkeley under Oppenheimer. We have uh, an accelerator expert who studied long-term effects of atomic bombings at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And finally, Steven Weinberg is on here. And if you don't know who that is, he won the Nobel Prize in physics. These are some heavy hitters. Yeah. So they're much younger. I mean, uh, Weinberg didn't win his Nobel Prize till 10 years later, but uh, still, these are not just people that were picked up off the street. These, these are, are not grad students. No, they are all members of the National Academies of Science. So these are highly respected physicists who approved the plan that we are about to talk about. So <laughs> what the plan was, uh, Nathan, do you want to explain the plan, how the plan works so that we can talk about the feasibility of it? I'll, I'll explain it. And then you can kind of explain the parts that I am baffled by. And that will happen almost immediately. So the okay. first thing that we need are hundreds of miles of tunnels. I'm already confused. Why do we need hundreds of miles of tunnels for this? So in order to get an electron beam to be powerful enough to get far enough to hit the atmosphere, you need a big accelerator. Okay. So I'm guessing that's what the tunnels are for. Okay, that sort of makes sense. Um, now, the way that they were going to make these tunnels, I'm also confused by, this is another Christophilus joint. He argued that now, at first, when I heard this, I thought that he was referring to the idea that you would blow up the tunnels with nuclear explosions. But then his description goes as this. Think of it like a suppository. We would push it through the rock. As it goes into the rock, it melts the rock. It creates this perfect tube. You just have to keep pushing it so it's hot enough so it melts the rock. That's not nuclear I don't explosions. get that. Is that like, no. like, a, like a meltdown of a reactor? I don't understand what he's talking about. I don't understand either. Because when you see what an underground nuclear test does, it does not make a hole. It makes no. like a bowl. So you can put the bomb far enough down that it doesn't explode things up. It basically just melts the sand or melts the environment underneath it and then creates a, a cavern. And then the ground just goes bloop and just like caves in. Not a tunnel. No, I mean, definitely not a tunnel, the opposite of a tunnel, but. And that's not even the craziest part of this whole plan. I'm still on this tunnel thing because I don't. Well, I mean, there is one you can get a subsistence crater. I guess it's possible, but OK, still, 
hundreds of tunnels using nuclear weapons, which is not a good idea. Not a good idea, but it's maybe better than the final part of this idea. Because the final part of this idea, not only do you need this massive tunnel to accelerate these particles, but you're also going to have to power this thing. And the amount of power that you would need to generate would basically be more than the entire country generated at that time. So where are you going to find that power? How are you possibly going to manufacture all that power all at once? I'm afraid to ask. I'm afraid to this answer. Is probably, this is probably why I don't have DARPA funding. I don't think big enough. <laughs> yeah. Because you're afraid to ask that, that's why you're not getting the DARPA funding. Because mm-hmm. here's the thing. Not too far from where Lee and I are is a massive lake, Lake Ontario. And it's just one of the many great lakes. So here's what you could do. Uh... You could just tunnel under those lakes and build a massive underground power generator. And then when the time came, it's like, we got to fire up this big particle accelerator. You drop the bottom out of all of the lakes. All of the lakes would then funnel into these these power generators within like 10 minutes, according to Christophilus, which would generate like an astronomic amount of power, which would then fire up your particle accelerator and you're saved. Yeah. And then you're fine. And then everything's fine forever. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Okay. Um, I'm glad that they didn't deal with the, um, you know, mechanics or engineering part of this because that none of that makes sense. I don't think that that could work. No, you're I mean, right. C- can you dig like just, could you create a basin underneath the Great Lakes that is the size of the Great Lakes or even bigger? And some kind of, I mean, it just sounds like an earthquake waiting to happen, isn't it? Like, it just sounds like some giant disaster. You'd want to dig something smaller because you'd need the water to flow extremely fast to be able to power that generator. Ah, so it's got to like a a funnel. Right. Okay. But then the Great Lakes are so big. Yeah. the, The rate at which they funnel into that generator I mean, I think it says somewhere they did the calculation and it would have worked, but I, I, I just can't imagine. Yeah, they, so they wouldn't imagine. have had the technology to have, no. to harness that. They wouldn't have been able to build a generator for it. And then getting okay, let's say okay, okay. Now, 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, here we go. Are off. Here it is. Uh, all right. So, say you can do it. Say you have destroyed everyone living on the Great Lakes by. By, by draining them, all the industry, all the fish and wildlife. Say you've just destroyed the habitat and living way of life for like millions of people along the Great Lakes. You power up your accelerator. You shoot your beam. Okay, you with me? With you so far. I, I, I feel good. I, I mean, okay, I live at the Great Lakes, but at least civilization in the Western part of the Cold War saved. So I'm on board. Yeah. We're not even sure that beam is going to get to the atmosphere. I oh mean, it better. Really? I just lost my lake. <laughs> and now, I have a friend with a boat who's super pissed right now. <laughs> and there's a lot of fish flapping around. Yeah. So this would, like, best case scenario, it might not work. Yeah. Wow. Because this, this, is, this whole report is talking about how there's a bunch of problems we haven't solved yet, right. theoretically. This isn't even practically. This is saying theoretically. 
And I looked up some of these problems and modern day, we still have not solved some of these problems. Man, that's okay. ambition. That is, <laughs> they, you know that what is, they must have had? They must have had that motivational poster on the wall of the cat holding on to hang the, in there. Hang in there. And they probably just looked at that every day and it's like, no, we can do this. We can totally do this. Keep drilling yeah. that, that giant hole. So I mean, they talk about things like they talk about beam instability. They talk about all these different ways that the electrons can interact with the atmosphere. And, you know, they are making assumptions about um, uh, the, the density being constant. It's just like, wait, density is not constant because you're going from earth. Then you're going, you know, through the, 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 just the, the Earth's atmosphere, and then you're going into right. outer space. Like you, you, we don't have constant density on Earth, uh, right. the Earth air. Like right, so they're making assumptions in their calculations of just constant density. They can't even solve it using constant density. Then they're going on about all these instabilities about ionizing the atmosphere. They're talking about uniform plasma density, which doesn't exist in the outer sphere. They're talking about no beam saturation. So they're saying that as the beam goes through, it's going to maintain exactly the way it was when it leaves the accelerator to when it hits the atmosphere, which there's no way, because you know, even when you like shoot a laser, sorry, I'm talking fast. Cause I'm just like, Whoa, come on. Okay. Do it. Oh, it's you know, <laughs> I get off and then I get excited. And then I just like start talking loud and fast. Okay. Ride that horse. You know, the <laughs> You know that like even when you shoot a laser pointer, that that laser pointer, you know, you shoot it at, at the board to point something out. You try to go to the end of the room and you don't you're not going to hit the end of the room. There's some beam saturation just going across the room. So imagine that that now is going to what, 4000 miles up the into the atmosphere that they're assuming that that doesn't change. Right. Then they're talking about that the beam is going to propagate uniformly. So that your accelerator is going to, this beam is going to come out of your accelerator exactly the same, like every single nanosecond. Like, so these are all the assumptions they're making when they're thinking about this. So I, I, I think this is great to have somebody who knows what they're talking about. Give us sort of an, in exactly. <laughs> Right. So just Nathan and I, we got some expert now who can tell us. As you get just... as you get all the hate mail from people being like, what is she talking about? Parameters. <laughs> we don't talk about parameters. Um, I think it's fantastic to know that this is that how far out this is. I mean, it really it sort of it sheds light on a couple of things. I think it does shed light on the state of fear and the discourse of panic. When you were talking, it actually Another non-technical problem occurred to me as well, which is that, wait a minute, we don't have time. Um, the, this, if we have to drain the lake and that, or the lakes, and that takes 10 minutes. Uh, I, I that's feel already, that's gotta be an optimistic estimate. Right, and yeah. but that's assuming, and I'm assuming then once the lakes are drained, like it's coterminous with the beam already, like basically in space, but, the missiles it can't be right. Exactly. It can't be. So I'm, I'm being extremely, I'm about as optimistic as these authors of the report are. And we don't get to hear about that is to say North Americans don't get to even know about 
the missiles coming until they reach a certain point past the Soviet Union at which our radar detectors in Western Europe are operating and then can relay that message to the United States, at which point there's a chain of command and somebody makes the call and then say, push the button to drain the lake, at which point I feel like we've already been hit. I mean, I, it's too late. It's too it's late. It's way too late. Because I, I, not to mention, like, I work on, I do experiments on accelerators. They're not electron accelerators, but they're, they're accelerators. And, you know, it can take you hours to be able to warm it, not just warm it up, but it takes hours right. to actually get your beam on target. Okay. And granted, you are not trying to get an electron beam on a tiny little target. You're just trying to shoot it off, you know, like shoot it out into space. Fine. But you still have to get that beam from the beginning through the accelerator. And if you've got this massive accelerator, it's not trivial. But I have a reason why they did it. Oh, 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 no. oh OK. <laughs> this I've got to hear. So there were a couple things going on at the time, and there is a little thing in the report. The first thing that I saw in the report was relevant experimental facilities. There is an Astron machine at Livermore that is um, being reactivated into another area. So the guys that are on this paper are electron guys. They are using, they're theorists, but they're in groups that are using electron machines to do research. Livermore took away their electron machine. See where I'm going here? Oh. Oh. Now, now it says, okay, what we should do now is re-recommend, particularly the development of an experimental program based on the type of machine currently available from Physics International. This machine is actually better than the Astron machine. They want an upgrade. They want an upgrade on the electron machine that was taken away from them at Livermore. These guys are all at Stanford. The same decade, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Slack is going in. So there's this big push for electron machines, electron physics, electron information that's electron experiments. So these guys are saying like, oh, and it says in this event, one might consider asking the Stanford Research Institution to monitor such a program. Hey, no conflict of interest here. All of us happen to be at Stanford. We happen to be experts in this. We happen to want a new electron machine. And by the way, why don't you just put it at Stanford? I think they can handle it. And hey, what do you know? They get funded. So is, is this in a way, the science community gaming the yes. discourse? Absolutely. I think Absolutely. that's brilliant. I mean, in a way, this is another conspiracy all in and of itself, right? It's like, how do you get the funding you need to do some rational research when everybody's losing their minds around you? I mean, it's just a way of like, there was just a river of defense money. And it's just like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to dip my ladle in and going to grab some of it. That's, I mean, that, I agree with Shelly. That's the only thing that makes sense because this whole plan, not a part of this plan is feasible. Not a part of this plan would work practically, would work theoretically. And yet one of the few things we know about Seesaw is that it was well-funded and it lasted a pretty long time. And this and would explain it if it was basically a kind of a long con. That's amazing. Yep. And uh, I mentioned this to a friend of mine, a, a a physicist that's been around a while. I'm like, have you heard of Project Seesaw? And he was like, no. And I explained it what it was. And he said, oh, it's just a con to get money. 
I mean, that, oh, he didn't even amazing. know anything about it. And he said, I I'm, love like, it. I'm like, that's what I thought. So, so I think we just came up with a scheme to get DARPA money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the only thing I can see about, I mean, with the people who are on this report and how brilliant they were, this is the only explanation on why they would endorse Seesaw. Although, you know who I do think probably believed in this plan? I don't think he was in on the scam. I think he was like, I think he was all in, but he was like a golden child, right? Like he was, he was the ideas man. Like he didn't have to think it through. He's just like, I'm the ideas man. Like I throw all the pasta against the wall. Eventually one will stick. Exactly. That's where the money was. Right. Because I looked up what the NSF budget was. NSF was a new agency in 1957. They had $134 million total for all science. Wow. Right. And and I mean, I don't know how big this project Seesaw was, but I'm betting the whole project was more than 130. Yeah. Million. They, oh, well, yeah, they had plans of up to 300 million, I think. Yeah. Three hundred million dollars. And the whole science funding in the U.S. by the government from the NSF was 134 million. Where are you going to try to get money? Well, I, I would like to ask an experimental physicist. Uh, with the 1950s tech at your disposal, what would be the best ICBM defense that, that you could get behind? Um, I know you don't build bombs. Uh, I do not so build bombs. I, I, I recognize I'm asking you something. What are the parameters? Like, can she drain all the lakes if she needs to? <laughs> Anything, whatever. She I don't, just, I, it's, just, it's even just a proposal. Like, I don't think I have you- the imagination to come up with something great. But if it's realistic, I think the best defense that we have is just shooting them out of the air. Yeah. Like we're straight up just like ballistic missile technology and you hope to get some of them. I mean, that's what we do now. Okay. I've got one. Yeah. Oh, I can't think, but he's more of a supervillain than I am. It's not fair. What what would you say? Just wait for it though. Then you'll see what a true supervillain I am. My answer would be diplomacy. No, that was going to be my answer. Oh, it's unfair. Okay, but uh, fair, fair. That's not fair because I actually played the game. (laughs) Yep. Super villain. No, I expected more from you, Nathan. I expected a real DARPA plan. (laughs) Of course, this is, we haven't even begun to exhaust, though, some of the bizarre experiments and schemes and plans that have gone on. So- Shelly, if if possible, it would be great if you could come back at some point, because I would really like to discuss the Pandora project. What's the Pandora project? Yeah, I don't know either. Using microwaves to control brains. <gasps> oh, I'd love to. Excellent. Okay, great. Thank Excellent. you. And in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for coming to our podcast. It's really a pleasure, honestly. Thank yeah. you. It was so much fun. Now, what the listeners won't know, because I will edit this, is that we've now been on for three and a half hours. Yeah. Oh, my God. Have we? Yeah. It doesn't feel like that. No. Like like... The podcast won't be that long. 